Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey there, podcast listener. Have you ever been listening to Wizard and the Bruiser and thought to yourself, I wish I could see just how fat Jake and Holton are in real life? Don't lie. We know all about your weird inside thoughts, listeners. Well, now you can make that dream a reality because Wizbrew and Page 7 are going on tour. Austin, Dallas, Milwaukee, Chicago, Minneapolis, D.C., Philly, Brooklyn, San Francisco, L.A. Nowhere is safe from an all-new show we're calling Release the Butthole Cut. Ew. Come join your fellow LPN fans for a night of pop culture chaos that's fun for the whole family, assuming your family consists of equally broken weirdos in their 30s. It's going to be a blast. Tickets are on sale right now at lastpodcastnetwork.com. Go, go now. There's VIP meet and greet passes available as well in case you want to get, you know, a little extra close, uh, especially personal. I legally have to clarify that there is no sexual element involved. I mean, unless, you know. Okay, cheese chick. All right, stop winking. All right, buddy. It's page seven and Wizard and the Bruiser live. Go to lastpodcastnetwork.com for dates and tickets. It's me, fucker. I'm Fritz the Cat. I'm fucking smoke weed. Fucking kill a guy. <laughs> and it's me, not Jessica Rabbit Boner Fuel Hollywood. <laughs> Look at my impeccably animated boobs. Nothing else in the movie is animated this well, but these rockin' yabos sure are almost, uh, I would say, obsessively drawn. Get a load of these doodles. And he's a wizard or whatever. We are here to talk about the life and work of Ralph Bakshi. What a wild, psychedelic wormhole we've gone through. What a bizarre just... Roller coaster. Now, I mean, I think you, this... now, the Ralph Bakshi, you know, if you, if, if you saw that name and you were like, I don't know what this name is, ask your dad. Ask your dad who Ralph Bakshi is, and he will tell you about uh, going to the X rated movie theater and getting high as fuck and having a blast. Or talk to your older brother who watched a ton of Cool World. 
And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because it aired every five minutes in the 90s on Comedy Central and HBO. Yep. It was that, la- that oh, hell yeah, my parents are gone for the night. I'm going to throw this dirty, mo- this filthy boob-tastic film on and feel weird for the next hour, 40 minutes. And I watched it last night, and indeed, I felt very weird, Jake. Ralph Bakshi's movies are the kind of thing that makes me question whether or not I like weed at all. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's the thing that like I will get high and be like, now it's time to watch the good movies for when you're high. And I'm like, I don't think I ever want to get this high. (laughs) Yeah, I so my little anecdote, and I think I've told this anecdote before, maybe on the R. Crumb episode, maybe even on the South Park episode. I remember coming home from the movie theater with my head full of songs like Fuck Your Fucking Face, Uncle Fucker, mm-hmm. and uh, just all sorts of what, you know, a, a dildo and uh, Satan and Saddam Hussein all sharing a bed together. You know, these sorts of things from the filmic experience, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And I came home so excited, you know, uh, so thrilled with this wild movie theater experience I had seen. I didn't think anything like it existed. And I said, Dad, you know, he was sitting in the house. I said, Dad, I think in I my saw... head, you're wearing a little sailor suit. You're like, Papa, yes. Papa, I've Papa. seen the most wonderful thing at the cinema. <laughs> I was like, Dad, I think I saw the dirtiest, filthiest animated movie ever made today in the theater. South Park. It is incredible. You know, we'd already seen some South Park together. Uh, that was like the kind of show that my dad would like look at and shake his head at, but also watch all of and secretly enjoy while I was like screaming with laughter the whole time. And I remember he's said, um, well, then you definitely haven't seen Fritz the Cat. And I was like, what? And he was like, mm-hmm, Fritz the Cat. And I think I literally went to Blockbuster like right after that. Like, just that's how obsessed with movies I was back then and consuming everything I could possibly consume. And I think it was at Blockbuster. Maybe I had to rent it from Vizart Video, the cool hipster indie mm-hmm. video rental store in town. But Yeah, yeah, Blockbuster, that's a rated X film. I don't think you can get that at I don't know, but I kind of remember it being at Blockbuster. But anyway, maybe it was like the uh, the rated version. But anyways, I got, the, I got a hold of this movie, Fritz the Cat, and I sat down and I was just like, Jesus Christ, Dad, why the fuck would you tell me about this. This is ridiculous. You know, I'm just nudity, drugs, violence, racism, just so much extreme, you know, portrayals of different types of people, but all from like the swinging wild 60s, man, and like had that whole kind of hippie vibe and I, I was it all animators just like all looked down on hippies and made fun of them and their work I mean it just felt so completely of its time in this specific way okay so animate okay oh there's so you just unlocked like eight different points in my brain and I've had just <laughs> enough monster brand energy beverage that all of them are exploding at once so <laughs> animators on their own are quirky people it is a very yes. solitary uh, very demanding, very uh, almost like m- monastic kind of craft where you have to study subjects, you have to capture motion, you have to master technical, like the especially back then, the technical intricacies of photography. It is an incredibly like head to- bowed at the desk kind of art form, but it's also one of the most expressive. It's also like the, 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 it, in animation, the, the gap between what the creator sees in their head and what appears on screen is like almost as one-to-one as any other piece of art form can be. Um, And so 
animators are weird, but they're also broke because it's not a fine art. It's not like a cool corporate job most of the time. So like animators are nerdy, focused, broke weirdos. And so they will spend a lot of time observing the outside world in the counterculture, in the underculture. Uh The fact that so much of Ralph Bakshi's work is obsessed with like the grime of the city and like populations that don't show up in animated movies uh, very often uh, all kind of ties into it. And the fact that he attracted so many other outsiders into his circle over the years also just creates this amazing kind of rock and roll underground grunge mirror to what Disney built. So, and the story of how we even got to Fritz the Cat is insane. But I'm just going to say, especially because just, I've watched a lot of Bakshi. We watched uh, Cool World. We watched Wizards. I watched um, uh, a little bit of the unfortunately titled Coonskin. I watched, uh, what was the other one? Uh, Heavy Traffic. Heavy traffic, really interesting. Did you say American Pop already? I didn't watch American Pop, but like, really interesting. These movies are super rough around the edges. Like, there's no other way to describe it. There's like uh, so many vis. uh, I watched a lot of the Backstreet or Lord of the Rings as well. He will Mm -hmm. use so many shortcuts that, um, you know, any artist will like try and say, oh, it's a stylistic thing when really you just are already busting your ass so much. So photographs as backgrounds, heavy use of not just rotoscoping where you're drawing over uh, frames of filmed content, but literally just overexposing the film stock so that it has a high contrast and just putting it on the screen as if it were animated frames. Part of the animation. Also, even going as far as using actual recorded conversations as opposed to writing and improv- scripts and hiring like actors. Improv. Totally just full-on improv. And full, not even just improv, actual just like field recordings of people having conversations in the streets of New York and Which just ad- adapting that into animation. It's naturalistic. It's innovative. It's all these things. But also, if you're sitting down to watch a movie, he breaks so many... Oh, yeah. I saw a quote somewhere where he said, like, uh, you know, he's at his in his element. He he was very alienated from working within studio systems on stuff like Lord of the Rings and Cool World. And he was really in his element when he was just sitting at home creating his uh, what he wanted, how he wanted. He even said that he put two or three movies into one movie. Like, and I think that is something that in us to a certain degree, you bounce off of a little bit. Right, Jake, in terms of just structure format. I mean, he is the anti Disney sometimes because of. Of attitude and sometimes because uh, straight up because of money. So what I'm all this is to couch that I don't like his movies. I don't think they're well made. (laughs) I think they are highly compromised, meandering, messy things. But hear me out. Fuck me. Fuck my opinion. I didn't make like a dozen movies, hundreds of episodes of television and like fostered the talents of an entire generation of geniuses. Fuck me. I am literally just throwing turds from the bottom of a pit at someone who actually did shit and like finished shit. And so like no matter what I say, my respect for what Ralph Bakshi has done is through the roof. Yeah, it Jake, is. you jerk. If I saw you right here, right now, in the same room, I would start kissing you, and I'd kiss you for way too long. What? And then you'd get really uncomfortable by Never. it. Never. And then you'd be, like, so upset about it. Holden, we're podcast co-hosts. <laughs> that is a bond thicker than anything <laughs> by law or blood. <laughs> 
I can't disagree with you, Jake, at all. I would say I had some moments of some revelations for sure. It's sad that you didn't watch American Pop because that's the one I caught just under the wire just now. And um, that was the revelatory one where I was like, I think this is his best film. And I think that this works in all these ways that... uh, that that I, I've come to admire about him, and essentially what I've come to admire about him is is his bringing of the rich history that he grew up in, his love of music, his his love of like that that uh, Brooklyn neighborhood that he grew up in with uh, Jew, Jewish immigrant parents, Brownsville, and incorporating that so and giving me like the feeling of being there so so vividly and mm-hmm. and and such a nostalgic, often kind of um, in a despairing almost like in a in a in a a, that that like misty nostalgia feeling that one might have around like christmas time you know what i mean that's kind of what american pop feels like as well as this strong representation of counterculture in the 60s i mean it all kind of that movie kind of has it all Mm. i think the best of what he does in the most cohesive way which is funny to say because it's incredibly abstract storytelling the Mm. that film but it still feels better that the story is better communicated than even let's say like a wizards and i didn't enjoy wizards too and honestly even watching cool world as much as i was just constantly going like what the fuck what is this weird edgy who frame roger rabbit ripoff bullshit movie there were these moments where i was like man those buildings look cool i love these backgrounds i love this character design i love you know like i love this weird choice that he made with like the club that's banging the music and those weird like dancing skeleton different colored (laughs) skeleton dudes and just like the biz- and and just all the bizarre weird like choices of like floating see through heads just oh, in the I middle hate, of okay. nowhere and so and we're gonna get more into cool the, world a little uh, bit. But I'm just saying I think there's right. a lot to enjoy and admire. Yeah, to sum this f- the feeling up, I think at least American Pop is I think actually quite strong. Mm-hmm. And in every one of his movies, there's something that you can admire, and there's something even there's an emotional. Uh, uh, there's something emotional happening or there's something you, you you know there's a feeling you can get from them that you just can't get from uh, Disney back she do what Disney don't that's what I'm saying <laughs> Jake back to you Um, it's such an incredible body of work it's such a confounding story the fact that he is you know you don't get to be this kind of uh uh, P.T. Barnum of outsider animation without being a little bit of a huckster as well, because so many stories in his life and so many mm-hmm. things conflict with each other. Um, he will he loves exaggerating his life story. He loves just throwing numbers out there. Um, you know, uh, he'll, he'll say something like he had 500, 700 animators working on Cool World when the real number was like 75 or something. Uh-huh. Uh, he'll do all sorts of stuff that I don't even know what to trust. But the fact is, I can't. I admire the fucking gumption. I admire just the cocaine fueled. And believe me, it was very cocaine fueled uh, drive to just make shit happen. The story of Ralph Bakshi is the story of ingenuity. And again, I think that's something that any underground artist, uh, whether you be a filmmaker or a musician or anything like that, I think connects to just right off the bat when it comes to appreciating his work. I think 
a lot of his work can just has inspired a lot of people to make their own thing and pave their own way and just say, hey, we can not only can we tell a story that's completely different from what the gold standard of storytelling is. And at that point, it was a very specific, obvious gold standard. And that was the work of Disney uh, and everything that they were producing. Um, we can work outside of that and still... Because this is the thing that you was surprising actually to me, which I guess maybe it shouldn't have been, and still make quite a good amount of money at the box oh my office. God. That, like these I, movies, that's the big secret. Something. Yeah, because the whole time leading in, I'm like, oh, it's gonna be a story like a guy who put out all this great work against all odds and like was underappreciated till years later, and then people. No, his stuff was massively popular, starting with Fritz the Cat. Fritz the Cat. Oh, I didn't know this, and I was like talking to my dad literally this morning. Because I was like, I had to ask him because uh, my dad grew up in Queens. Like he's not as old as Ralph Bakshi is, but like he was definitely in the target audience when Ralph Bakshi was making stuff in the 70s in his prime. And I was like, so what was the deal? And he was like, Fritz the Cat was fucking huge. Like it was uh, yeah. like um, everybody saw it. And I did more research on it. And because of the way a lot of these like box office lists are tracked, they don't include x-rated or triple x movies um but if you like include fritz the cat it was one of the top 10 grossing movies the year it came out it was a certified smash hit and considering its modest budget was a massive success so when he has all these uh kind of uh stumbles and like lesser hits along the way it's because fritz the cat was such a massive like money maker that they kept giving him chances well, there just had never been a such a naughty cartoon movie before. It was literally just that he was the first per guy out the gate to do it. Yeah. He was just the first person to have like these cartoon characters saying dirty words, doing well, and drugs. And, yeah. And, and it was just such a wild eye popper. It was also probably uh, apparently to, to thank uh, the film Clockwork Orange. We'll talk about that when we get to old Fritz. But yeah, it was... Uh, Really, uh, um, a game changer, and, and of course, obviously, you know, my father, same thing, right? I come home from South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut, and he's like, he, the, I guess you haven't heard of Fritz the Cat, in which I had not, and none of my, in my circle had, but I think for my father and your father's whole generation, it was that whole, it was that holy shit. Have you seen this thing? Oh my god! I mean, it almost reminds me of like a. To, in, in, in a different sense, like a Blair Witch Project, in the mm -hmm. sense of just like everyone had to see it. It was the talk of the town. It was this low-budget underdog movie, but it was just so unique and completely different in its approach to filmmaking and, and telling a story that it was like just it, it, everyone had to be able to have a conversation about it, essentially. It's, it's um, if you... if. If you are a fan of Ralph Bakshi, if you are like down with what he has been doing and you warts and all admire the balls on him, like you are a very special and elite kind of uh, <laughs> drug addicted man. Yeah, that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> you're just you're describing me. <laughs> yeah. I, I would have to say I like I've I'm I think I'm good on ever watching Fritz the Cat again. I I think at one point I had the DVD. I mean, I definitely would throw it on during certain kind of uh, we'll just say drug parties in college, that kind of thing. You know, I think I'm good on it. I I know the beats. I know the bizarre turns it has from being goofy and silly to just getting really dark and really racial and just all. It it's, just it just is all over the place the amount that i was like solidly shocked that these like decades old movies 
still had the capacity, A, for the violence, B, for the uh, Freudian nonstop nightmare of sexual content and uh, just the outright blood and gore and violence. Like I was I was like taken aback and I, you know. Watch the the fucking gross uh, animes. I watch like yeah. all sorts of underground and like indie animation shit. What's like uniquely... I watched every dumb YouTube uh, short where it's somebody yeah. like it's all stop motion animated and it turns out all the kids are dead. I watch all that shit and still I was like, holy fuck, watching this stuff. It's uniquely set, and I think it even came out in the early seventies. But it's set. It's so uniquely telling a story about the 60s which in a lot of media was this idealized time this like summer of love and all this kind of stuff and people getting out there and protesting against the man but this really told the story of the 60s that I think we come to understand about the story of the 90s and things where it was like no everybody was full of shit everybody was like posing and like pretending to be this thing but in the reality people are people and um, everyone's like taking Taking advantage of the movements and the situations of the time for their own uses, and also racism was horrific mm-hmm. in, during that time, and uh, uh, this, that, and the other, and you know, and, and Fritz was definitely this character. R. Crumb created, by the way, and if you want to hear more about. Uh, the R. Crumb side of all of that. Listen to our R. Crumb episode. We're not going to be able to delve too deep into it, but um, you know, it was still, it was definitely Fritz was this like great. Um, kind of this great mascot for like the darker side or the cynical side of the hippie movement and of of what was going on in 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 cities and you know liberal communities and stuff like that it was taking the piss out of all of that in a great way jake i think we gotta, we gotta bust into this because there's so much to cover here uh we're not gonna be able to spend too much time on any one film uh but we're gonna try to get his body of work in the best uh shape we can for you guys but let's first talk about the early days ralph bakshi and Initially born in Haifa, Israel. Well, it was the uh, Palestinian mandate. It wasn't even Israel mm. yet. This, uh, you know, he his family moved to New York when it was in 1938. That it was before World War II. Yep. This is how early in the history of the state, like it, there was no state of Israel for him to have moved. From. He was just one year old. Uh, of course, they were Jewish immigrants back. She said they were poor, but we didn't feel poor. And in an interview, he described being obsessed with the walls of his building in Brooklyn, how they'd been painted and repainted over and over again, creating this effect that just was something he just kind of loved to look at and and even touch and, and was just drawn to it as well as the wooden buildings in the neighborhood around him. He was just fascinated by this landscape that he found himself in this this incredibly urban landscape Uh, just to like thoroughly uh just how much the fucking how gonzo this man's life is uh the uh book unfiltered the uh complete ralph bakshi which you can get at the internet archive you can like rent it you can borrow it and from the virtual library there uh talks about how and again this could be bakshi fucking, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> zhuzhing up his own life story. But one years old, on the boat, leaving the Palestinian mandate, uh, his the boat was boarded by a Nazi U-boat that was on patrol, and they let them pass because it was a ship bound for America, and America wasn't officially in the war yet. Mm-hmm. Like, 
just it, from the get go, like on the precipice of history, this guy is. He said, I had this tremendous love of grit and this love of what New York's about and this love of what real paint's about. And he also had a great love of uh, making his own toys. He would take crates that we found around the area and he would use hammer and nail and they'd make their own toy guns and their own different stuff like that. And just, just he, you know, that's why he, he alludes to early on. I was the opposite of Disney. I was I, I liked I liked the city. I liked really getting my hands dirty making things myself oh my god not relying on any kind of big you know it's deeper than that because the whole thing of disney was you know he was a country boy that like yearned to mythologize main street america like that's the whole point of disney world and here's ralph bakshi raised in the exact like opposite uh scenario the grime the dirt the crowdedness like mm-hmm. everything and he lionized that he took that and elevated yep. it to a mythical standard yeah. across america bp supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like building grid scale solar energy in ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in texas It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. He loved comic books. He would dig through trash cans in the street in order to find them because, of Dodging course, he couldn't afford his glass, own. the he would say. <laughs> uh, and in 1947, Bakshi's family moved to Washington, D.C. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. I, I love this story. Uh, in grade school, Ralph Bakshi uh, got involved in a food fight and then socked the kid who started it. And he was taken to the principal's office and the principal hated him. He hated the principal. And... Uh, According to Bakshi, uh, <laughs> it's um, the principal, uh, Ralph said, was worthless. Just another talentless loser. Uh, and uh, the principal was saying, you know, he was going to get locked up. He was going to be a criminal. And um, Ralph said, oh, yeah, well, at least I can draw. <laughs> and at this point, he had just like been copying shit out of the comics that he was collecting. Mm. But he just needed something to be like, oh, yeah, well, fuck you. I got I, I do things. And the principal immediately smiled and realized that he could get rid of Bakshi by sending him to Manhattan School of the Industrial Arts, a vocational academy for like commercial artists. Um, he immediately set up an appointment for Bakshi to take the entrance exam. Only 10 kids were admitted. Bakshi was one of them. And that's where he started like, kind of formalizing his pathway to becoming an artist, which yeah, I love. He, like his entire career started out of spite. He excelled in cartooning under the guidance of African-American cartoonist Charles Allen and managed to graduate from the school in 1956. Uh, backing it up back to that Washington, D.C. trip, the mo- notable thing about that is, is he moved into like pretty much an all-black 
black neighborhood. Um, he said, all my friends were black. Everyone we did business with was black. The school across the street was black. It was segregated. So everything was black. I went to see black movies. Black girls sat on my lap. I went to black parties. I was another black kid on the block. No problem. And he even tried to go to the all black school and ended up, uh, the cops ended up getting called to remove him <laughs> because they were so concerned about white people like rioting over the fact that there was a, a white uh, and all, oh, God forbid, a Jewish kid going to this all black school. And to say all that is just to say this is why I think he becomes very, very uh, fascinated by African American culture, especially inner city African American culture, which is why we get to stuff like, um, you know, the, the characters he portrays in Fritz the Cat, obviously the ill named uh, Coonskin film, which we'll talk about uh, as delicately as we can because Hachi Machi, <laughs> that one's interesting to say it's the least. Lot. It's a lot. It's well, just misguided. There was the the, the he, he had good intentions, but I mean, uh, well, we'll get to we'll get to it. <laughs> I guess. Uh, so yeah, he he graduates from that school, and that's when uh, around when he ends up getting a job at Terry Tunes, the my, American uh, Animation Studio located in, New Rochelle, in my hometown New York. of New Rochelle, New York. Wow, uh, such classics like Mighty Mouse and. Deputy Dog. Yep. Uh, and it was actually a friend's recommendation that got him a gig as cell polisher, which is a really shitty job removing <laughs> dirt and dust from animation cells. Literally, the the boss was surprised that he kept going. Uh, he kept showing up because his commute was four hours each day. And so he pretty soon was uh, promoted to um, higher levels uh, in the company. But still, like you, you mentioned the food fight. He also got in trouble smoking at school. He was kind of he was a bit of a trouble troublemaker at school, right? And his rebellious nature definitely continued uh, at Terry Tunes. He was promoted um, to cell painter. However, he wanted to be animating. So in order to practice that, he slipped a bunch of cells he was supposed to animate into a co-worker's pile to give him more time. And eventually, he literally drags his desk down into the animation department. According to Bakshi, there was a director, an animator, who I loved very much. He was about 70 years old when I came to Terry Tunes. His name was was Connie Rosinski. Now, Connie Rosinski was a clown. He was a hobo. He was a boxer. He rode the rails. He did all those things as a human being before he became an animator at Terry Tunes. The black and white days. He was the desk director and he stood up for me. He said, he's animating. He's doing a good job. What do you want from me? He's the guy when I carried the desk downstairs, I went to him and I said, look, I'm here to animate. Give me a scene. He looked at me for three minutes and he knew exactly what I was doing. The only thing that stopped him from busting out laughing was he leaned over, gave me a scene and said, here, do this and bring it back when you're finished. He knew exactly what I was doing. I spent two weeks down there before the production manager came and found me. And that's when Connie goes to bat for Bakshi like how first of all how crazy is that that he literally just took his desk and moved it like a floor mm -hmm. down and just said no I'm a fucking animator now this won't be the first time he just walks into the fucking room yeah, and just most people makes it happen could you imagine doing that like back when you worked in a corporate job, just like <laughs> pulling something like that? You'd have, you'd be removed from the building immediately. Well, Terry Toons was kind of a mess during this era. Like, uh, you know, during the heyday of the shorts of the, you know, like intermovie shorts, there was always like stuff to be done. There were always things that you had to had to do. But this was during the TV era and stuff like Jay Ward and Hanna-Barbera we're kind of kicking their ass like Terry Toons made these cheap little cartoons with forgettable characters like there's a reason 
we don't think about Marvin Diggs or uh-huh. like uh, any of the, or just what's what's this Diaper Boy? Literally, the character's uh-huh. name is Diaper Boy. Well, that was his his superhero team. We'll talk about that in just a second. But yeah, yeah, that is for sure. It was Heckle and Jekyll is another one. You know that that he would end up directing on. Um, yeah, it was definitely like it was like worse than Hanna Barbera. It was like schlockier than Hanna Barbera, <laughs> cheaper than Hanna Barbera, even right, and kind of gave him a, a lot of um, dis dis uh, uh, disillusionment over the, everything going on with the anima- animation scene. Also, though, too, he describes a moment when he does get promoted to animator. He ends up walking outside. He said a bunch of uh, animated animator union guys were waiting for him with bricks in their hands, and he had to like, and he was like. And then they saw that I I was ready for a fight and I wasn't going to back down. And like they ended up like uh, letting it go. But I mean, it just sounded like a fucking war. Like it was just like uh, really violent and challenging and uh, wild. And he just kind of busted down the door on that, uh, which is really crazy. He... He uh, by the, at the age of twenty five, he was promoted to director, and his first series was Sad Cat, which spoofs fairy tales and happy endings. And then he also goes on to direct Deputy Dog, Heckle and Jekyll, and Mighty Mouse. Uh, and one day, he went with fellow Terry Tune employee Bill Weiss to help him with a presentation to CBS to pitch a couple of animation series, which were all passed on. And then, uh, right as all the producers are leaving the room at the very last second, Bakshi um, he pulls out this pitch completely out of his ass. He pitched is something called the Mighty Heroes, a superhero team featuring Strongman, Tornado Man, Rope Man, Cuckoo Man, and Diaper Man. Uh, with the logline, they fought evil wherever they could, and the villains were stupider than they were. And the execs love it. And this is his first, like, I'm just gonna tell them what I'm making, and I'm just gonna get something to happen. And and uh, he he was really well. He was really good. It seems like at the art of the pitch and the art of uh, sealing the deal and getting the green light, which he did for that. Um, that series runs for a year. However, this experience by this time he's getting frustrated with Terry Tunes. He's you know he's just not really loving the the kind of the yeah like I said the schlock they're just pumping out constantly in that Hanna Barbera way, uh, and so this is uh, his his out comes with um, pitching a. First, he pitches a fantasy series to CBS called T-Wit, which was passed on. This becomes the basis for his 1977 film, Wizards, which we'll talk about later. But soon after that, he hears that the Paramount Pictures uh, uh, animation division had, uh, had just been fired and they were looking for a new job. He ends up getting that job. This literally gig, though, walks in, just walks yeah. in and Again, gets the just, head yeah. of the animation department for a major studio. Just well, partly, the- though, that was because they knew that this was like a placeholder and that they mm-hmm. were slowly going to be shuttering the doors right. on that animation department. It only lasted for about eight months. Yeah, I mean, so much of Bakshi's career is like highly contingent on the fact that. Uh, most studio heads just have no fucking idea how animation is made, what it entails, like what is whether it's good or not. Yeah, he really just in that knowledge vacuum just thrives. 
And I think he was just done after that time with Paramount. They get some stuff out the door. Actually, I think, did you mention Marvin Diggs? One of the things was actually Marvin Diggs, which was a bit of a precursor to Fritz the Cat. It was, uh, uh, he described as a flower child picture. It was intended to be filthy with bad words and sex scenes. Of course, the studio didn't allow that. And uh, that's part of leading to his frustrations of working with studios in general, uh, but was a bit of a precursor to Fritz. And then uh, after Paramount, Bakshi forms its own studio based out of the Garment District of Manhattan, which Bakshi described as, quote, the worst neighborhood in the world. The studio started out uh, making a couple of television series, including that shitty Spider-Man show. There we go. Okay. Yes. Thank God. I thank God. Thank God. I didn't, I was praying. Uh, okay. We get to talk about the Canadian. We, we've talked about it before. I think we talked about it on our Spider-Man episode, but I'm not sure. Uh, so because of legal disputes and the fact that like Bakshi was uh, just like, was thought he could do so much of the production on his own, which looking at the 60s Spider-Man cartoon, you can tell that a lot of it was just done by a very skeleton crew. At some point, he was in Canada working on Spider-Man and he had to, uh, because there was like legal disputes between the different production companies and he was working on the production under the nose of like all the studios involved, a warrant was out for his arrest and he had to, with like hands full of production materials and animation cells, escape on a bus. He'd sent his assistant on uh, to the airport with his luggage to throw the cops off his trail. He had he was a fugitive of the law while making the <laughs> Spider Man show. It's sick. It's it, what it. God, what a fucking career. He's also just pumping out jobs for companies like Coca Cola. He does a gig for Encyclopedia Britannica. If you remember that before the internet came and completely destroyed that entire industry. Um, and none of this stuff was fulfilling for him. And he gets to work on a story set in New York City, a personal work uh, with heavy pinball imagery about a young cartoonist combining magical realism with harsh urban life called Heavy Traffic. This is set, This was meant to be his first feature film. Um, the problem is he's too much of a newbie in the game. No studios are willing to back this project. They, they don't, they, you know, they can't trust that he'll be able to get anything out the door. So Bakshi, heavily inspired by what was going on in the underground comic scene at the time, uh, discovers uh, his next project uh, at, as he says, the underground cartoon explosion showed me the way that animation, like everything else, has got to grow up. And he really enjoyed the works of Robert Crumb, and he discovers Fritz the Cat at the East Side Bookstore on the famous street in NYC St. Mark's Place, which is still this counterculture, although it's a bit more disnified than it used to be. It's still this interesting counterculture just set of uh, blocks that you can go down even now. It's definitely you can feel the history of that. Bakshi took the book to his producer partner, Stephen Krantz. That is an important name to remember uh, for this next bit of story. Uh, he'd been working with him on the Spider-Man TV show, and together they approached R. Crumb for the rights. It was said that he was impressed with Ralph's ability to adapt his work, and in exchange for 25k, he signed over the rights to make the film. Crumb denies this, claiming he never gave the two the rights, and it does seem that uh, the rights were taken care of via Crumb's wife at the time, who used power of attorney. Mm. But it's a very complicated 
situation when it comes to the money exchange, the rights of it. And we all know, especially if you listen to the R. Crumb episode, R. Crumb like hates the film adaptation mm-hmm. of Fritz the Cat. Very, very upset with what happened with his creation. But on a budget of $850,000 via Warner Bros, uh, via Warner Brothers, Bakshi had to cut a lot of corners to get the movie finished. And so there are several choppy moments in the film. There are uh, uh, the crowd scenes are a good example. This is when we kind of start to get into uh, 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 Bakshi's absolute ingenuity and ability to cut these massive corners uh, to get stuff made. Um, So uh, uh, Krantz said this about the difficulty just getting the low budget that they got. He said, "There there has never been a project that was received with less enthusiasm. (laughs) Animation is essentially a dirty word for distributors who think that only Disney can paint a tree. In addition to that, Fritz was so far out there that uh, that there was a failure to understand that we were onto something very important. The low budget also amounted to not being able to hire enough checkers to make sure all the cells fit properly. Uh, some of the cells for a desert scene weren't wide enough. They literally <laughs> had to go back and hand paint cactuses to cover up the edges. This is the kind of stuff that Jake was alluding to when we talk about how everything is just like barely held together by a thread. <laughs> and the that feeling is I think one of the reasons why his movies are exciting. And that goes all the way through Cool World. I mean, Cool World is like, geez, Louise, you're like, oh my God, this is just barely (laughs) telling a story on the screen right now. Also, the low budget... uh, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Also, the film was uh, mostly devoid of pencil tests. Uh, Can you explain pencil tests, Jake? Uh, Yeah, this is a very important part of the uh, animation process. It's kind of what makes... Disney and other major animation studio stuff so fluid is that the animators will do everything, uh, you know, in pencil first and just kind of get a rough outline of how the timing and how the movement of each shot will work. And then they go in and ink it and then they go in and paint it. If you just kind of go balls deep and just start drawing uh, from the get go, you're going to get a lot of like very choppy things. Things won't move right. It won't line up with the like the background painters won't know where everything no, no, is. Jake, right. he, he tested it by flipping an animator's drawings in his hand before inking and painting. So that was that he made up for it. Right. As, I mean, you get what you pay for. That's all you got to say. <laughs> Yeah, so you definitely, that's why you get a lot of these effects had to do with this novel approach, which he continues to do through like the next several movies he makes, by the way, the the, uh, absolute absence of uh, pencil tests. Bakshi strove to create with his animation a sort of combination between live action sensibilities and old school cartooning. He said, my approach to animation as a director is live action. I don't approach it in the traditional animation ways. None of our characters get up and sing because that's not the type of picture I'm trying to do. I want people to believe my characters are real and it's hard to believe they're real if they start walking down the street singing this is also when he incorporates the first uh, approach that I think, again, people find to be really fascinating. Uh, for backgrounds, Bakshi and his background artist, uh, Johnny Vita, walked around different areas of New York City and took photos that they inked the outlines of onto cells, which was a, such a unique approach at the time. And again, a great way to cut costs that also just, yeah, exactly, accidentally becomes this really fascinating, like unique-looking animation approach that, that was quite novel for the time. Uh, 
and he again for Fritz the Cat is the first time he starts taking actual recordings of real conversations and and animating around those um, from actual just people talking like at a, in a bar. <laughs> now this is when the X rating comes in. Uh, this was at the time, you know, kind of like. I remember when the movie Kids had an NC-17 rating and how that was just considered death for a movie release. And this was very similar with the X rating back at this time. Uh, And it was, uh, you know, what's funny is they really leaned into it. Like, I think um, the, what's his name? The crazy producer that he worked with, uh, Krantz. Mm Mm-hmm. He, you know, the, the the movie's advertising had slogans like 90 minutes of violence, excitement, and sex. He's X-rated and animated. And also, it's rated X for a reason, baby. It was all like definitely saying like, hey, this is going to be shocking. This is going to be wild. And for an animated fe- animated feature at the time, that was, that was especially unique. Um, and some attribute that uh, the film's success, albeit uh, with the X rating, to another release of an X-rated film at the time, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, that almost like paved the way. It said art films can have that rating and still do well in the box office or be appreciated by a general audience. It seemed to kind of pave the way in this in this interesting way. Um, so this movie comes out in 1972, and it becomes the most successful independent animated film of its time. It does surprisingly well in the box office, putting Bakshi's name in the map as a dude who can make big, big profit on a small budget. And it, I, I think I recommend it, but it's like, just know what you're getting into. It's mm-hmm. incredibly of its time. It's hard to recommend it in 2022. It's a lot easier to recommend it in you know, the year 1999, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It just, there's so much p- poor treatment of race and, and counterculture and women and <laughs> just kind of I mean, everything. if you just want to know what your dad, like what the inside of your dad's mind looked like. You yeah. Could, <laughs> you For just, sure. It's It serves a very interesting purpose now as a piece of just uh <laughs> psychotropic uh yeah uh, uh paleontology yeah for sure it's like it's all if, if they cut away certain things from it it would actually i think it would be this like really would hold up in certain ways but there's just a lot of gnarly parts it's surprisingly dark and oh, just yeah. very upsetting especially by the end it just kind of it kind of starts one way and leans more and more and more into the more serious, heavy, violent, scary elements of it. I mean, the scene where uh, I believe it's yeah, uh, uh, Duke, the one of the crow characters, just like uh-huh. bleeding out on the hood of a car is brutal. There's yeah, like it rough. hits so hard. And yes, um, it is like, and there are crows that represent like the the african-american like harlem you know enough for dumbo exactly it definitely leans into that and he's going to lean into that even more in uh coonskin which we're about to get to but before we do we have to mention heavy traffic that movie he had wanted to make initially he does able he is able to make that after the success of fritz the cat which was huge in the box office did really really well um and uh heavy traffic uh, is uh his penny arcade inspired film that we talked about um during the 
this time, by the way, Bakshi and Krantz are fighting over money. Oh, yeah. Bakshi felt Krantz was ripping him off. Uh, and I think he was, it seems like he was like, ah, it didn't really make any money. I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, you just bought a BMW. <laughs> I know what's happening here. At one point, Krantz locks Bakshi out of the office and mm-hmm. won't let him back in. But uh, other the other backers for the next movie they're trying to make are like, um, we're not, we don't want to work with you. We want to work with Bakshi. He becomes this minor celebrity uh, as well. He's having, he's in talks with people like Scorsese and Coppola and George Lucas. He's like, he's in the mix with all these like very highfalutin Hollywood. New Hollywood specifically. New Hollywood. Yeah, that whole wave was happening right around now. And that's really what, what, made Fritz the Cat such a success. It was lumped in with all of these other films that were coming out at the time, like Mean Streets and The Godfather and everything like that that was just ch- completely changing the face of Hollywood. And uh, it was it was definitely... He was definitely living, living the high life, but he wasn't killing it financially at this point, which is kind of interesting. And that's a lot because of his scrapping with Krantz. Heavy Traffic, again, proved to be a success. Uh, Bakshi now had notoriety as the first person since Walt Disney to have two box office success animated films back to back, which is kind of another wild factoid that gives you a little perspective on like why he was such a huge deal at the time. Uh, And now Bakshi is considered the anti-Disney guy as well, making films with sex drugs and filthy dialogue. And his next picture would be no different. Um, And I would probably be his the first time people started really looking at his work and maybe not being so hot on it. Uh, It was intended as an attack on racial prejudices and stereotypes. However, the merit of that, of course, has been debated in the film Coonskin. In the uh, the film, he went after stereotypes. He goes after white racists. Uh, He focuses a lot of his attacks on the mafia, actually, because he did feel that they had been far too glorified up to that point because of the movie The Godfather. And though he did hire a lot of African-American animators to work on the film, including Brenda Banks, the first African-American female animator, uh, and he had a cast including Scatman Carruthers and Barry White, among others. Uh, the results are mixed, to say the least. Uh, the Congress of Racial Equality protested the film, calling it racist, along with other groups out there. It, this, Jake, this is apocryphal, what's going but I on? think the, like, yeah, at one point, one of the groups that was protesting uh, like got a screening of the movie and said like, okay, it's actually like kind of, there's, there's merit. He, like, it's not, like, we get what you're trying to do, but dude, we're the name. We're not going to like, we'll, we're not going to approve of it, but we'll stop like going after it so hard. Um, mm-hmm. insane- and, uh, by the way, it wasn't it the NAACP that supported it. I mean, yeah. it wasn't all like, it wasn't all like decried. Like there were, there was a very mixed conversation going on about the merits of that movie. And I do believe he had the best of intentions. It's just like he would never have made that movie, you know, t- even 10 years later, much less 20 or 30, you know, much less in 2022. It's just not, it's, you know, we all know now that like um, a non African American guy you know, playing off of like deep stereotypes and, you know, including like the whole Uncle Remus thing. Oh, yeah. Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Bear, all these. You can learn more about the Uncle Remus thing in our uh, Song of the South uh, or rather our Splash Mountain episode. 
But uh, yeah, it just it's just I think I I, I do think There's the intention repair was very mishandled. Of, uh, very problematic uh, portrayals of gay people and queer people mm. and trans people in this movie, um, like and to the point where. If images of violence against like uh, kind of uh, marginalized people is upsetting, this is not the movie for you because there is yeah. a lot of very brutal violence, which, you know, is they're trying. It is a brutal, violent society that Bakshi is commenting on. Yeah. But it's just. Hey, it's fucking New York City in the 70s, dude. I mean, yeah. there was so much tension happening between every different group you could think of. There was so much fucking violence. You know, the the especially like the summer of Sam and everything. I mean, it was just an intense time to to be there. And I think he did represent it to a certain degree, but you know, it's yeah, it's just stuff that does not talk about something that don't hold up. I don't but that didn't really hold up back then. This was the first downward turn. That you know, his next intended release was Hey Good Looking. It was about the neighborhood he grew up in in Brooklyn in the nineteen fifties and uh, it had an even more bizarre mixture of live action and animation. But after the backlash from Coonskin, Warner Brothers uh became hesitant to release it. So they shelved it until Baxter was able to release it himself several years later with his own money. And this was actually all of the controversy surrounding that film uh, was why he ends up making Wizards in the late 70s. He finally wanted, he's just like, I don't want to be this, just this provocateur mm-hmm. animated a- anti-Disney guy anymore. I want to, I want to create something younger audiences <laughs> could enjoy, which is hilarious because it's I, covered in Hitler imagery. Oh, but, d- uh, d- Hitler imagery, visible uh, fairy nipples, guns, oh, yeah. blood, uh, like everything possible. The quote I love is um, uh, when talking about uh, at the time titled War Wizards, which yeah, I'll just say it, uh, his chummy relationship with uh, George Lucas, uh, Lucas was like, hey, could you change it to just wizards? And Ralph Bakshi was like, I don't know. And George Lucas was like, I'll have Mark Hamill do a voice in the movie. And yeah. Bakshi was like, sold, wizards it yeah. is. This is, uh, this is uh, Bakshi saying, my city films were being roadblocked from theaters. I wanted to go back into all the fantasy drawings I was doing in high school, which is true. I wanted to prove that Ralph Bakshi wasn't all sex and drugs, that I could bring the same impact to something PG. And <laughs> holy shit, the idea that <laughs> Wizards is a PG movie is right. a lot. Well, it's a, it's a 70s PG. I mean, let's mm, get, you know. Hey, but you're, you're so right. It's a hard PG. It is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot for sure. But still way less intense than his last few films. You can at least admit that admit that then and still pretty fucking intense. <laughs> uh and you know, it was his homage to Tolkien actually, uh but in the American idiom, that's that's his words. I had read Tolkien, understood Tolkien and wanted to do a sort of fantasy for American kids, and that was Wizards and I love it very much. And you know, I think this film again has a limited release, does really well in the box office uh, for what for what it what it was, and you know just again proved that he could scrape stuff together. In uh, this film too, by the way, is when he really turns hard uh, uh, to rotoscoping, which I think is something that again is what makes Jake not like love oh. a lot of his stuff. Right, his his heavy use of rotoscoping. Well, okay, so there's whenever you see stuff that looks like it was filmed in a cartoon, you're like, oh, that's rotoscoping. Where in this movie, because pencil mileage is a term in animation that like 
the more shit, the more actual physical things you have to draw, the harder it is to animate, the more time it takes, the more expensive it is. And so if you're doing a Tolkien-like thing with like giant battle scenes with tons of like moving parts and individual warriors all running around, it's it's almost impossible to do. Or if you are going to do it, you're going to go way over budget. So he d- does what he always does. He finds a workaround. And so he uh, takes like a mixture of people in costumes just just running around and just old World War II footage, like actual newsreel footage of like tanks and bombers and just kind of overlays it over the action, cranks up the contrast so that, you you know, which they had to do in camera. And it all just is, it just isn't effective. Like in theory, if you just, you know, you're supposed to just be like, yeah, yeah, it's all a cartoon, but it just takes me so out of it. And the fact mm-hmm. that he kind of doubles down on that technique for Lord of the Rings is just all the weirder. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Oh, yeah, which we're about to get into. I will say those rotoscope scenes were from different movies uh, that he used the battle scenes for and and animated over them, such as the 1938 Soviet historical drama Alexander Nevsky, as well as Zulu, El Cid, Battle of the Bulge. I mostly bring this up because he actually invented like a whole new way of doing rotoscoping, utilizing the new IBM industrial-sized photocopier. It would have taken $3 million originally at that time to do what he was doing. But using this photocopier was like a penny a copy to create large scale versions of these different um, film uh, film cells, film frames. So it was very fascinating with that. Um, but yeah, after Wizards, Baxi said, I'm sitting in my office and I read that United Artists was going to make Lord of the Rings as a live action picture written and directed by John Borman. But they were going to condense three books into one picture and add extra characters to make it work. For a Tolkien fan, I thought that was the stupidest thing I'd heard in my fucking life. You can't squeeze those three books into one picture unless you're making a Roger Corman film. So in Bakshi fashion, he literally just shows up at the <laughs> offices, demands that he gets to take over the project and make it an animated thing and make it three movies, and they just sort of say, yeah. He, he's, he gets MGM to back it, and uh, that. but then the exec replaces him, it falls through, then he pulls in a different producer, and uh, this is kind of when things get really messy. This is essentially when he finally you know he had amazing luck and amazing um you know an amazing work ethic too and like i said ingenuity to get to the point where he could create these like stitched together i can't believe he got this out the door film projects Mm -hmm. ended up being box office successes this is the first time where he actually kind of gets shown the how it can all fall (laughs) apart he he said he said 
I nearly died. It was the hardest thing I had to do in my life. I didn't have the budget for producers. As I was shooting the picture live action in Spain, I was running the company on the phone through my secretary and my production manager. I didn't get much sleep. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do. But the animators loved me. And I had tremendous support on all my films from these guys because they loved what they were doing and they knew what I was trying to do. They held it together. So that's the thing is this movie was going to be all rotoscoped. That was his like... That was, uh, you're going to take footage of real actors doing the scenes and you're going to animate over them, which uh, seems like a cheaper and more streamlined way to produce fluid kind of high quality animation. But in reality, what you've done is you've set up uh, a scenario where you now have to make two movies. (laughs) You have to film the entire thing in live action and then you have to animate over it, which itself takes as long as just making the movie in the first place. Well, and he also had actors, uh, he had voice actors in a different part of the world recording Mm -hmm. the dialogue and then the, the physical actors had to hear the tape of the recorded actors and lip sync to it was just so overcomplicated John Hurt is amazing as Aragorn I will say that much mm-hmm, his stand up mm-hmm. performance uh Bakshi tells a tale probably apocryphal cuz like I said he's a little bit of a flimflam zimzam man there was so much weird crap in the background like telephone poles and just loose pieces of garbage that the Spanish film crew almost destroyed the master shots because they thought that it would uh, look bad for Spanish filmmaking that such a shoddy movie was being produced by them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of nuts, man. And this whole project was just like such a such a shit show. The final nail in the coffin came during the editing process. Back she said, "I wanted 3 or 4 more months for editing. I was exhausted I was tired. I was burnt out from Spain and shooting, and I didn't want to make the deadline, which was right before Christmas. What you're looking at is the first rough try on my part. So I had a big fight with the studio to buy more time. We can't. We've got the theaters booked. We've got the popcorn in the theaters. You know that bullshit. So that was the first blow. The second blow was when I handed it in a week before release, what we used to call wet prints to the theater. They showed me the advertising campaign, and I said, where's the part? Part one. And that's when I found out. Because if most people know, the weirdest part about this film, The Lord of the Rings, is that it just ends with the Battle of Helm's Deep and then literally like a narrator just goes, and that's the story of The Lord of the Rings, which made Tolkien fans, Lord of the Rings fans, absolutely furious. Because of course they know there's a whole lot more shit that goes down after that. Uh, not only that, but JR, the rights to J.R.L. Tolkien was a shit show in America for the longest time because of like on a technicality uh, the original publishers like didn't actually produce the books in America and that like affects the timing so things were all over the place Rankin Bass was making their Hobbit and it was also animated and people were like suing each other back and forth on whether or not it was like too close and whether it was like a violation of copyright there and uh, just to add to the buttfuckery Rankin Bass then released Return of the King using Bakshi's movie as kind of the de facto middle point between The Hobbit, their Hobbit, and their Return of the King movie. It's it's the entire saga so of weird. the animated and, Lord of the Rings could be its own episode. Afterwards, too, they did want Bakshi to make a part two, and he just was like, I don't I don't have time for this shit. I've I'm this made me miserable. I hate working for you guys. 
I'm just I'm walking away. And mm-hmm. he was just like I, I had a good quote from him that I, I didn't put down, but he was literally just like it was just a different time back then. You know, if you felt disrespected and you felt stomped on, you just fucking said fuck you and you mm-hmm. walked away. And in a way I can appreciate that, but it did leave such a weird like for any Lord of the Rings fan the whole animated film aspect outside of the rank of bass hobbit which is fantastic is just so befuddling like but i will say i'm kind of glad still that he stepped in and this happened because if they had made a live action lord of the rings i don't know if we would have gotten peter jackson's version all those years later i think the weird it being an animated film and not even the whole thing and all this kind of stuff almost helped us get the real, you know, the powerful Lord of the Rings that we got in the theaters years and years later. And apparently Peter Jackson was heavily inspired by that uh, animated oh, film yeah. the that people actually put out. Pointed, you can find on YouTube compilations where people like there are shot similarities that like, you know, even if unconsciously like how, Peter Jackson saw these stories in his mind was influenced by that movie. For sure. Uh, so yeah, that's the whole shit show that is Lord of the Rings. That's definitely not actually not the last time Bakshi has a horrific experience with studios and decides that that is never the way to go. We'll get to Cool World in just a second. But first, I do want to highlight American Pop. I do think that this actually is his high watermark after viewing it a little while ago. Uh, he turned. He wanted to turn inward with his next project, make something really personal. That is what American Pop is. It follows four generations of Russian Jewish immigrant uh, of a Russian Jewish immigrant family of musicians. It also shows the evolution of American pop music through the years. I mean, it's it's heavily rotoscoped, and so if you bounce off of that, you you just still might not love it. But I think it is absolutely gorgeous, and I just love the flow of it. I love the tones of it. There's this vibe to it with the different songs you use. It's, it's also, by the way, we're talking about a soundtrack. Miles Davis, Janis Joplin, The Doors, George Gershwin, The Mamas and the Papas, Herbie Hancock, Lou Reed. I mean, there's so many... Lou Reed, there's so many incredible um, songs that make up this movie that is almost, a, it's almost a musical. I mean, it's just constant, a beautiful music thrown at you through all these different generations. And also a lot of, you know, it's kind of funny because we get to Cool World and my God, does he love dancing ladies? Mm. This movie has a, f- a great fair share of that as well, but dancing dudes as well. So, you know, and I think the rotoscope, unlike maybe in a Wizards or Lord of the Rings, I think the rotoscoping really does a service to a movie like this because we want to see those authentic dance numbers and we want to see musicians like really playing music in front of us and in a way that it would be hard to get across without any rotoscoping. Mm-hmm. So I think that that shines through better because of what the the you know the movie's all about. Uh, and yeah, I I I think I highly recommend that. I I do I really do. I think that that is some of his strongest stuff, at least that I've experienced. I haven't watched all these movies that we've been talking about, but I really enjoyed that one. He also made Fire and Ice with Frank Frazetta. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one's kind of what at, right? It's just, it's, it is. It's Conan a Frank the Barbarian. It is, yeah. but a movie. Yeah. Um, again, heavy rotoscoping. Uh, Frank Frazetta, of course, the godfather of fantasy art. And it's, uh, what do you even, would you even recommend that? Have you I seen that one? I saw clips of it and I was like, I, there's, I've had too much backseat. I got to move on. This is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it seems like it's kind of a blip in terms of his, uh, but maybe someone could, could say, state, hey, this was actually one of his better 
works. But I will say after Fire and Ice, which again, I think did surprisingly well in the box office. American Pop also did surprisingly well in the box office. This guy just keeps putting stuff out that you would never think would be a success in the theater. And it's just maybe just because it's animated, because it's unique and like nothing else. And there's just not a lot for people to, to appreciate and enjoy when it comes to animated features, especially at this point. Uh, there's really just Disney and not a whole lot else. But either way, he's he's crushing it. I mean, I don't even shouldn't even make up excuses for it. It's just he brings people to into the theater. He's talented in that way. And, you know, after that, uh, after Fire and Ice and American Pop throughout the 80s, he mostly worked on projects that fell through. He tried to adapt Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He tried to adapt Catcher in the Rye. But of course, J.D. Salinger put his foot down on that one. Uh, he also, during this time, ends up being a mentor to future Ren and Stimpy creator John Kurskvelucci whose name I sort of said. And um, and then uh, the 80s are rounded out with his return to television, and that would be with, with Mighty Mouse, The New Adventures. So we covered a lot of this in the Ren and Stimpy episode, but it's a amazing story because, uh, you know, he was extremely burnt out by this time. All of these movies that he, you know, by sheer force of will and bubblegum, like, got out the door, uh, gets the call, they want to do like this kind of, uh, you know, this uh, Rolling Stones Harlem Shuffle, uh, which involves a lot of like kooky animated characters of uh, urban black people, uh, which is kind of, you know, you got to get Bakshi for that. Uh, <laughs> and the music video like earns tons of rewards. Uh, it does amazingly well. It puts his name back on the map. And so he starts taking calls again and famously on a call with CBS He's pitching stuff and he says, uh, how about Mighty Mouse? I, I had the, he said he had the rights to Mighty Mouse and could do a new <laughs> Mighty Mouse cartoon. He did not. He absolutely did not. He worked for Terry Tunes. And so he just like blurted out because that was one of the most high profile children's things he was attached to. And he immediately calls his assistant and is like, I'm screwed. I told him we had Mighty Mouse. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, fuck. We're so fucked. Turns out CBS had acquired the Terry Tunes library in like 1955. Like some, it just starts to make me mad after a while. Because it's so hard. I've never been able to get a project off the ground like this, and he just Have seems you tried to fucking... lying through your teeth and then having <laughs> God Himself solve the problems for you time and time again. <laughs> the episode, the Mighty Mouse cartoon, gives birth to tons, tons of future future stars. Bruce Tim, the co-creator of Batman the Animated Series, Andrew Stanton, the director of Finding Nemo and Wally. Uh 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 uh, uh oh who else? What's her name? What's her name? What's her fucking name? She she co-directed Shrek. Uh sh- fuck Shrekina. Me. I no, think it's, it's Linda not, Shrekina. It's not Shrekina. <laughs> I know for a fact it's not Vicky Jensen. There we go. Mm, uh that was so- way off. A whole new era, a whole new like class of animated gene of animation geniuses who had nowhere else to go besides Bakshi's like weird ramshackle uh, operation. And so on the back of the success of Mighty Mouse, uh, which then unfortunately uh, gets into trouble because of a scene in which Mighty Mouse snorts a flower like it's cocaine. uh, (laughs) He sells a movie. He sells a movie 
Oh and my it's God. a great little movie. It's going to be the first fully animated horror film about a, a cartoonist who has sex with one of his creations, an animated woman, and the half-human, half-animated uh, daughter of his, uh, who was uh, banished to the realm of cartoons, finds her way back to the real world and goes on a killing spree using the assorted devices of a uh, classic anime uh, cartoon character, your mallets, your anvils, and uh, goes on a killing spree of revenge. I believe the character's name was Debbie Dallas, just for extra horny points. And the it's yeah. and the the pitch is bought. They they yeah yeah. Th- this is when things get I I guess this is real is what I'll preface this quote with. This is from Bakshi. It was a real horror film. I'll, I'll back it up a little bit more actually. Um, so I was discussing the problems that a lot of men seem to have with their fathers. It was a real horror film, but the metaphor was basically, why don't we understand our fathers and why do we become the worst of our fathers? And I'm going on the set to shoot it. This is a true story. And Frank Mancuso Jr., who was put on the picture as producer, and Frank Mancuso Sr., who put him on since he ran Paramount Pictures, had written a screenplay in secret. And I was handed a new script on the set. And the guy who did it, I blocked his name, but he's got screen credit now for writing the script. I ran into him and asked him, how could he ever have done that? How could he ever write a picture for a director and not tell the director? You know? So that's what happened on Cool World. An R-rated horror film turned into a PG. Okay. What the fuck? (laughs) So... Screen Rant, or no, I'm sorry, what Screen Rant? What am I saying? This was Slash Film. How could I get those two very (laughs) different websites confused? Actually (laughs) interviewed that writer, Michael Grace, and had for his side of the story, and he says, Frank Mancuso Jr., whose name actually came up in our Friday the 13th episode, the legend goes that like he wanted to get out of the horror ghetto, which during this time in the 90s, the slasher was not in a good place. Like We didn't get Uh to scream yet. And it wasn't like reinvigorated. Um, So uh, Michael Grace, uh, his agent calls and says, talk to Mancuso Jr. They went to see Mancuso Jr. And he said, look, I've got Ralph Bakshi and he wants to do this live action horror thing. We don't know what. He doesn't have an idea of what it's going to be. I don't have an idea what it's going to be. You guys come back with an idea and we'll pitch it to Ralph and see what happens. So I knew Ralph Bakshi's work. This is still Michael Grace. I'd seen all his work. I knew exactly where his taste was. So we came up with a story about a tattoo artist who was in jail for killing his wife, or maybe it was killing his neighbor, and became famous for creating (laughs) these tattoo people in a comic book called Cool World. He gets released from prison, and anyway, we pitched that to Bakshi and Mancuso, and Bakshi stood up, raises his arms, and says, you're my guys, you're on, and that's how we got the job. (laughs) Man, uh, the, what in the, the world? reporter yeah. for Slash Film then goes, that's interesting because on the internet, Bakshi says the script uh, went behind his back and Mancuso hired you guys. Went behind and, his Bakshi. And Bakshi was furious and tried to punch you. And Grace says, that's all a lie. I've read it too. Every part of that is a lie. He and Mancuso were friends. They got along really well. Nobody was punched. There was never an argument between them. So there was like tons of, um, uh, actually Grace, who knows? Later in the interview, Grace really gets into like, uh, 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 he talks about Bakshi being crazy. Uh, 
Grace says, we called him the human stain because wherever he went, literally, he left a stain. Whether it was cigarettes or whatever he was eating or drinking, he always left a stain. (laughs) Uh, He says that he was disappointed because the changes in their script that kind of uh, made things go all over the place. And whether or not any of like, I don't know where the truth lies, but um, the just insane race to the finish of this, of this movie, the uh, sets that you described, which were like really incredible. So weird. Honestly, I kind of thought that was some of the cooler stuff, even though they were all, it was like, cardboard thin like high school play type sets but real twisted and weird kind of almost gave me like a Tim Burton vibe a little bit a lot of that was the work of artist Barry Jackson and one of the workarounds was instead of doing the expensive green screen stuff um, and a lot of the composition that would be required for something like the Roger Rabbit effect uh, they just like had Jackson create these original sets of 2D elements kind of propped up so that it was like flat paintings set up within a 3D space for like the feeling of depth, which uh, Bakshi claims is just so that the actors could have a better uh, understanding of everything. Uh, Barry Jackson, the set designer who did a lot of the background paintings as well, especially like those cool twisted uh, buildings with faces that I know you remember. Uh, When we got the green light, they said I had to design 13 live action sets in three months. Uh, The producer asked me if it was indeed possible. And before I could say, no, that's not possible. (laughs) Ralph covered my mouth and said, of course he can. I worked day and night with a small crew for three months to get it done. And after that, we spent another 18 months in post painting matte shots and blue screen shots. Um, Yeah, the whole thing feels so stitched together. And honestly, it's funny how it really just makes me admire Who Framed Roger Rabbit so much more because, like, you can see it in every interaction that, like, an animation has with a human or with a real world object. It's so not seamless in the way that Who Framed Roger Rabbit is, which I want to throw it out here for context. Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out in 1988, and this film came out in 1992. Uh, It needs to be said because my big takeaway from watching Cool world last night was holy shit it seems like there was a cool world counterpart to everything in who framed roger rabbit the spider guy was kind of roger rabbit the baby you have a precocious like a baby that smokes a cigar and talks Mm -hmm. like an adult you have the mayan type character Mm -hmm. with it in the gang with them as well even brad pitt for some reason becomes like a detective when he enters the cool world space and even though he wasn't that like in the real world uh you've just there was just so many was taking credit for Brad Pitt's career through this movie. Uh, according to him, he literally, uh, uh, Mancuso was pushing to get rid of Brad Pitt because he was such an unknown at the time and wouldn't be able to carry the film. Looking at is he's very rough around the edges in this performance. Yeah. Like it's clear, you know, it takes a lot of experience and skill to actually make someone surrounded by a bunch of fake bullshit believable. And I don't know if Brad Pitt was up to the task. Supposedly, uh, in an effort to keep Pitt in the movie, Ralph compromised and ditched who he originally cast as Hollywood, uh, Drew Barrymore, instead getting the uh, much more box office uh, bankable Mm -hmm. Kim Basinger at the time, which, by the way, ha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. Ha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha, for sure. 
Also, too, the Kim Basinger, the Hollywood character, a one-to-one to Jessica Rabbit. She also is a nightclub singer that also has, like, a Wooga Wolves surrounding her at every turn. I, I was just so shocked at how how much it resembled. Like, to the point where it was like, was he just trying to do... And, and it's all convoluted now because all these stories contradict each other. But in my head, was he just trying to do the same thing he'd been known for before as the anti-Disney guy? He wanted to make, like, the anti-Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I think my biggest knock on the movie isn't, like, all of the stitched-together elements that we've been talking about. It's just how fucking idiotically similar it is to Who Framed Roger Rabbit to such like an eye-rolly way of just like, man, everything had a counterpart. Like you could put, point to everything in, in Roger Rabbit and, and and point to the counterpart in, in Cool World. No, because we talked about bumping the lamp in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, that there are so many yeah. things meticulously done that like for the for just the the sake of fidelity and the illusion of the film that would required so much effort and so much just like backbreaking detail oriented focus that is not present here animators on cool world that were working for Bakshi basically were told like fuck the script fuck whatever just make a little zany thing and we'll put it in the movie and so half the movie just has some like nonsensical non sequitur bullshit just kind of flying through the scene with no like sense of gravity or space within what happens it's just it's like they literally just showed cartoons on a tv (laughs) in the scene as if nothing was happening Mm -hmm. um it's it's, wild it's such a i cannot stress uh when watching this movie with the sunday study group by the way go to patreon.com slash whizbrew to find out how you can join our weekly streams where we watch talk and engage with future topics i was out for this one which is not a usual occurrence but i was traveling during this one and watching it last night i was like i bet that was fucking awkward We had a running We had buttons where we would hit it if it was something that was supposed to be sexy but is actually fucked up and uh, very unsettling. Ding. Something like a non sequitur piece of animation that totally yeah. distracts from the scene. Ding. Uh, horrible composition work that makes the animation and live action look like they were filmed on two separate like dimensions of reality. Yeah, ding. That like just uh, scores and scores of dings throughout this movie. But it was like, um, it was Bakshi's like highest budget picture. And oh God, no, now I'm just having flashbacks of the weird sex scene. And if you're upset with us for like taking any kind of shit on this movie, I will also back that up with like, he hates this movie. Mm-hmm. He he thinks that this was a, another studio disaster that he just proved his point that he should not be making movies through the studio system. I mean, the ending is almost a giant fuck you. It just goes off. He just, like Gabriel Burns character just becomes a Superman and just shit yeah. flies off the rails. Yeah. It just becomes so crazy. Although in an interview with Pulse magazine in 1992, Bakshi described the premise of Cool World as a metaphor for the AIDS epidemic. Mm. The conundrum of humanoid slash noid characters who are not allowed to have sex with cartoons slash doodles was meant to reflect the relationship problems faced by people in the AIDS generation. Right. Even the part where they call it doodles, whereas in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, it's tunes, Mm -hmm. right? And just the whole thing was like, there's a whole nother world you got to go through a portal for. But the whole difference was in storytelling. I mean, I and that's my biggest problem, even more than all the animation stuff you're talking about and the weird horniness. 
The storytelling is so bizarre and poor what in this story movie. Telling? The rules exactly, change like, on a dime. The stakes change. It's so change. weird. And it's, they don't explain anything. They don't explain like like how he ends up, you know, whereas in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I think one of the best parts about it is it's this airtight, amazing mm-hmm. storytelling surrounding a very ridiculous premise, but everything has a purpose and a reason for existing. And none of that comes through. It just feels so random uh, uh, in Cool World, where you're, just, or, and and you can connect dot. There's just a lot of dot connecting. Like you, you can get there with it. It's not like I'm totally just don't know what's going on in the movie. But you have to. You, there's constant dot connecting. Mm-hmm. There's never, uh, uh, you know, an attempt to tell a cohesive story. You're like, oh, okay, I guess this is this because of this. I mean, even just the whole like weird mad scientist. Oh, who shows up in one of the first scenes and then disappears. And then just like right, it disappears right. And even in my head, I was giving notes. I was like, why not make the spider, weird spider guy, the mad, like combine that with the mad scientist character. It's kind of right there, right in front of you. Because then the spider guy who kind of is like the Roger Rabbit of the movie, in my opinion, he comes out of nowhere and you're just supposed to accept that he's like close buddies with Brad Pitt's character. And it just makes fucking no sense at all. Like you're like, what is this guy? Where does this character come from? We're like two thirds of the way through the movie. And now I have to like, <laughs> accept that it's a buddy cop movie all of a sudden. Well, Roger Rabbit. I'm sorry. Uh, no Roger Rabbit indeed, because Roger Ebert, one of our favorite go-tos for of the era, uh, movie reviews claimed that the film missed one opportunity after another. It is a surprisingly incompetent film. Uh, Leonard Malton said this film was too serious to be fun, too goofy to be taken seriously. Yeah, I agree with that take. That's a good take. And at the same time, it's also one of those movies where I'm like, I but watch it. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, you're not. It's not. I. I it's it's one of those '90s ass '90 movies where it's just like, but you gotta watch it. It's so nuts. You have to see this thing. It's just such a crazy conundrum, and it will it will be a fascination for you, you know. And I don't. I hope. I hope I'm not upsetting it because I think there are some people out there who really like have a good big love for this movie. It is movie. an essential part of the '90s weird nostalgia landscape. I mean, the yes. soundtrack had uh, an original song by David Bowie called like Real Cool World that is very, very haunting, very good. Uh, You know, it was his first original track in years. It has songs by Moby, The Future Sound of London and Ministry. It's like a very like grindy EDM fill. Like it's a very cool soundtrack. The posters were everywhere. They were advertised Mm -hmm. in comic books all the time. And there was a giant controversy when Paramount put up a giant-sized Hollywood in her little white getup uh, over the Hollywood sign and caused massive protests for the overly sexual lady that was gracing a national landmark. It's so weird. Just to give you an example of like what this is as a fever dream, like I genuinely thought I never actually watched it before. And last night when I put it on, I realized, oh, no, I've definitely not only watched this, I think I've watched this multiple times and I've just sort of blocked it out. And I was only remembering every scene as it would happen in front of me. I was like, oh, my God, I remember this scene. Oh, yeah, this weird scene with the baby pissing on the... (laughs) 
police officers and the chase. And then this weird ass scene where the, where Kim Basinger's character who turns into a real lady starts turning into this like clown woman at the nightclub. All of a sudden there's, it's just, it's just wall to wall. I like befuddling. how every character for the first 40 minutes can't stop talking about how, whatever you do, don't nut in this drawing. Yes. <laughs> So strange. All right. Well, let's move off of it and conclude this episode. Well, obviously, the Amiga game we got to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, the last uh, big work for from uh, Bakshi uh, after a semi-retirement uh, was actually due to his son Edward, who showed him how Kickstarter worked. And uh, they very quickly were able to crowdfund his uh, last film, the, uh, which is called Last Days of Coney Island. In fact, she said, it turned out to be the best time I've had in my life. A 77-year-old man fully working on animation, in-betweens, backgrounds, layouts, character design, and everything else. That's the kind of work I did when I first began working at Terry Tunes, before I started to direct. The Mighty Heroes back in the, back in the 60s. So making the uh, so making Last Days of Coney Island was like going back home as an animator, and I can't tell you how much I love that. It was a hard thing to do, especially uh, in uh, the in betweens. But luckily, I learned from a lot of great animators like Jim Tyre. I was able to have a conversation with them, though they are gone now through my drawings. It took two and a half years, but I'm happy it got done. Uh, it is a very rough film, <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, very expression. It's almost told uh, more so as kind of like animatics than a fully animated feature. But mm. for uh, anybody who is down with Bakshi's vibe, you will appreciate it. And then he kind of just uh, has been spending his uh, retirement years as a painter. And his paintings yep. are colorful and have a wide variety of subjects and inspirations and medias. I actually love his work as a painter. Those quotes about him being obsessed with the paint in his apartment growing up as a kid and how it was painted over and painted over and painted over and the way the colors came out of that. That was actually an interview of him talking about his current work as a painter. And you see that in his work. It looks like even buildings I stayed in that that kind of um, approach to repainting the shit out of an apartment and mm. that weird flaky visceral just inner city kind of feeling to his work. It's really, really cool. I, I, I appreciate it as well. Um, and, you know, I think he's also uh, really happy with w the way his career went in a lot of ways and how he's appreciated now. He said, I like what Kerouac said. If you live long enough, you get rediscovered. My films still speak to a new generation of disaffected young people. But you tell me why the studios won't uh, buy a movie from me. I can make a low-budget film and make a profit for a movie company. I have my own fans that aren't dead. I have young fans and word of mouth. I don't feel bad at all. Uh, and I have a final quote. Do you have anything else you want to say? Uh, nothing but respect for this man. I will continue flinging my own turds from the bottom of a pit where I have made nothing and created nothing and still just be like, it feels like the shadow masking is off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, he speaks for us as well. He'd agree with you on a lot of that stuff as well, honestly, Jake. Yeah. And I do really appreciate his works. Check, it, check out American Pop. And definitely, if you've never seen it, just from a fascination sense, Fritz the Cat, you know, a cool world even. Um, but this is what he had to say, and Wizards, this is what he had to say uh, about his own work. 
I am as sloppy as a Jackson Pollock painting. I am as sloppy as a Francis Bacon painting. I'm about what I am saying. And unless animators think uh, that what they are saying is as important as what they are moving, then we're going to have this endless repetition of Toy Story 12. I'm serious. You can point at my lines or my colors or my sloppy in-betweens, but it's all bullshit. At the end of my film, you're going to feel something. Often confusion. And (laughs) maybe a little bit stained. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Wiz the Bruiser. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. For $5 a month, you get weekly bonus episodes. For $15 a month, you can join us uh, for a Sunday study session like when we awkwardly watched Cool World. And that's over on Discord. I had a blast. It was a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Also, twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho. I stream Monday through Friday. But enough about me. Let's talk about Papa Jared. Uh, hey, do you like weird old cartoons? Maybe kind of like the ones we talked about? Do you like me picking them apart and getting frustrated by them? Then you will love the Cartoon Dumpster. Every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern, I, in the form of my VTuber avatar puppet, Jared, uh, spend a good chunk of time watching the weirdest, most bizarre, terrible cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, along with a rambunctious community of equally enthusiastic weirdos. It's a very good time. Go to youtube.com slash puppet, Jared, or twitch.tv slash puppet, Jared, and come along and watch with me. And hey, Always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing, man. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.